Welcome back to Jeopardy! Alderaan Edition. We're ready for the Double Jeopardy! round. Utini the Jawa goes first, and here are the categories. The Outer Rim. Jedi or not. That's no moon. Sith happens. Small thermal exhaust ports just below the main port. And potpourri. Utini, where do we start? Utini! This online Star Wars store has officially shipped to every country on the planet Earth. R6-D9. Jet's Toy Hut is correct, and you have control of the board. Zero movement. Greedo. No, anyone else? What is Jet's Toy Hut's shipping policy is the correct response. That sound means we have to move on to Final Jeopardy. The category is action figures. The clue, seven. Seven, you have 30 seconds. Good luck. Let's go to Utini the Jawa. What did you write? Utini! Surprisingly, your own name is not the correct response. And you wagered everything... Bringing you to zero. Let's go to Greedo. You had 16,000 Republic credits, and you wrote the number of custom-sized boxes that Jet's Toy Hut uses to ship collectibles. That is the correct response, but unfortunately, you forgot to phrase it in the form of a question. What the hell is that sound? ToyHut.com All too easy. On a doomed expedition, your hot dogs may contain actual dogs. I'm Kevin Leeson. Wanted. Podcast listeners. Safe return doubtful. I'm Joe Fulgham. Shackleton shot my cat. I'm Jessica Pink. We're going to talk about polar expeditions. We may be some time. I'm Torn Atkinson. Welcome to Caustic Soda. It's the Caustic Soda Podcast! Yay! <laughs> It's time to set the mics up. It's time for Tales of Woe. It's time to take the red pill on the Caustic Soda Show. It's time to do our research, unless your name is Joe. It's time to load the wiki on the Caustic Soda Show. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it makes me very hungry to introduce to you, Jess Pink! But now let's get things started. Why don't you get things started? It's time to get things started on the informational, aberrational, strangulational, nauseational, strapped in for the Caustic Soda Show! You are about to enjoy part one of the Caustic Soda Doomed Expeditions episode. There was so much content that we just had to split it up into two episodes. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Caustic Soda. Our topic today is Doomed Expeditions. Doomed Expeditions. And our special guest is Jess Pink. Hello. What makes you an expert on Doomed Expeditions? Oh, I'm very fascinated by it. I do lots of reading on the topic uh, from the comfort of my living room. Where it's warm and dry. So you haven't been on a doomed expedition yourself? <laughs> not yet. There's no, still time. not yet. 
Not unless we count this uh, current sojourn to Halifax. Oh, but yes. it hasn't come to doom quite yet. So. Or, or being on caustic soda. <laughs> or being on caustic soda. Well, the word origin of doom comes from Old English, dom, which means condemnation. Condemned expedition. And expedition comes from Latin expeditus, which means to prepare. Literally, to free the feet from fetters. Expedi- oh. Expeditus. Oh, okay. Exped. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, Exped. Like I get it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Never thought of that before. And there's no real phobia of doomed expeditions, but there is a phobia of open spaces or being in public places. Agoraphobia. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. No relation to angoraphobia, which is the fear of very soft and comfy sweaters. Hmm. So we're Who not- has that fear? <laughs> not, not me. <laughs> Somebody crazy. So there are, of course, a number of mountain climbing expeditions that we are not going to discuss. Yes, we're going to save that for our Death on the Mountain episode. Oh, yeah. okay. So I've got, I've actually got seven. Ooh, lucky number seven. Yeah, seven okay. expeditions. And I'd like to take them in chronological order, if that's all right with everyone. Okay by me. So starting in 1845. Okay. With the John Franklin Northwest Passage. Oh, yeah. Here's, Even I know about this one. Here's the mission briefing. The captain was Sir John Franklin, an experienced Arctic explorer. The mission, to traverse the last unnavigated section of the Northwest Passage. The start date, May 1845. Mm-hmm. The vessels were two ships, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. I do like the name of their boats. Yeah. Was the Erebus something entirely different, or is it just a bastardization of Cerebus? Uh, Erebus is the Greek son of Chaos. Chaos and Terror were yeah. the names of their boats? I think they might uh, have... Chaos Jr. <laughs> Yeah, Chaos Jr. I, I love their hamburgers. <laughs> mm. uh, Erebus is, is also used to refer to the underworld. Mm. So mm. hell and terror. Yeah. yeah. The crew, uh, 24 officers, only five with Arctic experience, and 110 men. This is another theme that you see all the time in these bad expeditions is a lack of planning. People who just have no experience. Yeah. Well, the fact that as a crew member, you signed on for an expedition where the names of your boats were... <laughs> Hell slash chaos yeah. and terror. Yeah. That's because that's it's badass, right? Oh, yeah. Not a harbinger is, of doom. Yeah. This is, you want to get the guys who back in the, that day would have loved ultimate fighting and thought that they were totally rad right. and could take on anything. Because nobody else is going to be dumb and, enough to go on this expedition. I didn't know Ed Hardy shirts were on this expedition. That's exactly it. <laughs> These were the Ed Hardy versions of ship names. Dude, it's the terror. Come on, man. What are you, a puss? <laughs> They're leaving in May. So a, a jaunty summer cruise then. What could possibly go wrong? Well, they had supplies for three years. That seems reasonable. Including 17,000 pounds of biscuits. I can't uh, even imagine a pile of biscuits that big. <laughs> 2,700 gallons of ale and porter. 16,000 pounds of salt beef and the same of salt pork. Now I know why it's called the terror, because of the gaseousness that'll be emitted oh, by yes. the, the crew. The terror. <laughs> 15,664 pounds of tinned meat, 10,000 pounds of tinned soup, 7,000 pounds of tinned vegetables. Uh, these came from a cut-rate provisioner. But this will be important later. Oh, <laughs> foreshadowing. Dun, dun, dun. You, uh, that music right there. Stephen Goldner was awarded the contract just seven weeks before Franklin set sail. Oh, and in seven weeks, this guy had to come up with all that food? Yeah, Goldner worked in haste on the order of 8,000 tins altogether. Tins, vegetables. Meat and vegetables. Yeah. 
16,000 pounds of beef is about 17 million calories. So don't eat it all at once. That's, that's good <laughs> advice whether or not you're going on an expedition. Yeah. Uh, they also had 4,500 pounds of chocolate. Well, Torin now wants to go on this expedition. They, uh, they had 100 gallons of wine for the sick uh-huh. and 100 gallons of brandy also for the sick. And they had 55 pounds of Normandy Pippins. Who knows what that is? Normandy, Normandy Pippins. No idea. No. Is it something you eat? or is Yeah. It, okay. Uh, a Normandy Pippin. Oh, they're, they're the hobbits. <laughs> right? yes, they from brought, Normandy. They brought 55 pounds of hobbit, which little, is one. Little, they little French one hobbits. fat hobbit. <laughs> Nasty fat hobbit. Sun-dried apples is what Normandy Pippins are. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. All right. And also more than a thousand books they brought. That they can burn for fire <laughs> yes, later? Exactly. They can start. When they have to burn the uh, ship for, for to keep warm, they'll yeah. have the starter. I don't know if they did it on this expedition, but on one of them they used brandy to soak socks and put them on the feet of men who had uh, frostbite. Oh. So there's your medicine with brandy. Would that alcohol. actually work? Oh, alcohol. I doubt it. Yeah. yeah. You don't really need to disinfect anything when you're in the Arctic. No, it doesn't sound... <laughs> and doesn't alcohol don't use to cool something? Certainly when you drink it, it does something about your core body it, temperature, it, which is why it makes you feel warmer, but you're not actually it warmer. It open, opens up your blood vessels. Yeah, yeah. You know how alcohol's got a lower freezing point, so I wonder if it's got something to do with you know water up against the skin and keeping it defrosted. Oh, maybe. Maybe they just soak them in the alcohol and then set it on fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's better. Yeah, Thank cr- you. A crew member flambe. Or once your uh, socks were nice and soaked, all the other crew members would want to suck them off, so you'd have nice warm mouths. I don't know if I'd be of... putting that sock on my feet then, if that's what was going on. <laughs> I'm going to try that out at the bar tonight. So they wintered on Beachy Island. Oh, that sounds pleasant. Yeah. It's not Beach Island, it's Beach E. Yeah. It's <laughs> kind of, it's Beach Ish. Uh, where three crew members died and were buried. Okay. So that's that's the probably that's the start off. Probably of the died day. from having fun. He could they, be. Yeah. They were they were upset that it wasn't a beach. It was just <laughs> yeah. beachy. They died of disappointment. Just yeah. Oh. Uh, the Erebus and the Terror became trapped in the ice for a year and a half, and the crew abandoned the ships. And Franklin and his entire crew died of a mix of scurvy, starvation, exposure, hypothermia, and lead poisoning. Lead poisoning. Sc- scurvy. Um, yeah, I didn't hear any. There was no fruit in that list of food, right? Uh, they or did have they, they, the pippins. Oh, that's right, the apples. They had pickled cranberries. They did have lemon juice. Huh. Okay, so they had... But they probably ran out. (laughs) Somebody just went crazy with the lemonade really early on. Come on, we're going to be fine. Let's make lemonade. We're heading to Beachy Island. (laughs) Beachy. some lemonade. Does anybody have any ice? So the theory on the the lead poisoning... I'm going to go with uh, bad tins. Yeah, that the cans were soldered improperly and toxic levels of lead seeped into the food. Mm-hmm. And another theory was that the ships were fitted with converted railway locomotive engines for auxiliary propulsion, which required a ton of fresh water per hour when steaming. It was likely for this reason that the ships were fitted with a unique water distillation system, which, given the materials in use at the time, would have produced large quantities of water with a very high lead content. And then they drank it? I would guess That's so. That's the theory. Oh. Because you're out in the ocean, right? And there's a, if you've got a yeah. distillation unit, you can then just use the salt water to make fresh water. But then, oops, lead. <laughs> oops. There may have also been some botulism as well. Oh, well, that oh, just goes with the territory. Yeah, sure. I mean, if, the, if they're improperly soldered using lead, they probably didn't even care if they were completely closed up, these yeah. cans. So. Yeah. Or actually, no, closed up is fine because it's, it's uh, whether or not you cook the food as it's in the can. Isn't that how it works? You have to kill everything once it's closed up or something? Yeah, it's sort of an abiotic, you know, without oxygen. Anaerobic. 
anaerobic, yeah. Yeah, an anaerobic reaction. So you have to kill off the little bacteriums mm -hmm. or whatever first. You, you boil the food, put it in the can while it's still hot and bacteria-free, and then solder it up. And if you make a mistake and there's botulism in there, while it's sealed up, it'll just grow and get gross. Yeah, the cans were actually larger than normal. Oh, okay. So it's, uh, it's, the theory is that it just wasn't cooked long enough. Right. Cannibalism was reported from Inuit contact uh, 10 years later who presented uh, sail some of the sailors' uh, personal effects. So apparently 16,000 okay. pounds of salt beef is not enough for no. how long they were no. out there? No. On the skeletons, there were knife marks, which is part of why they think cannibalism was... Consistent with defleshing. Ah, right. nice. So after two years, a rescue party was organized, uh, which eventually turned mapped much of the Northwest Passage. This seems to be, uh, whenever they're doing exploring, a lot of the search parties actually do a large chunk <laughs> yeah, of, the actual <laughs> of the mapping. Yeah. They found an error-ridden document in a cairn left by officers, so a pile of stones. Mm -hmm. They found a clothed human skeleton on the southern coast of King William Island with some papers from the Terror. They found a lifeboat containing two skeletons and relics from the expedition. In the boat was a large amount of abandoned equipment, boots, silk handkerchiefs, scented soap, sponges, hair combs. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much the uh, how it all turned out the, the for those Franklin guys. The Franklin Expedition. Yeah, for the Northwest Passage. Now, who knows when the Northwest Passage became a viable shipping route. Uh, so this was 1845 to 1848, right? Yeah. I'm going to go 1849. In 1920? I don't know. Ooh, I don't know either. 2009. Oh, pfft. Whoa. Nice. Hooray, global warming. <laughs> That's exactly right. The Arctic pack ice prevented regular marine shipping throughout most of the year, but climate change has reduced the pack ice, and this Arctic shrinkage made the waterway, waterways more navigable. Hmm. So I'm sure all those rich people who deny global warming are now sending their booty-laden ships through there <laughs> and just going, well, God just wants me to make more money, so he opened the passage. It has nothing to do with global warming. See, this is, this is where I find myself completely wrong, because I always thought Arctic shrinkage was a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you guys, uh, how do you guys want to rate this on the doomometer? Out of, uh, out of 1 through 10. Yeah, 1 uh, to 10. 1 through 10 knife knife scraped skulls <laughs> i'm gonna give it a 10 yeah i mean this is about as bad as it can go i mean you you, you don't even pretty much get anywhere before you get trapped you wait a year and a half to get out of the ice it never happens yep. you abandon ship there were no survivors there were zero survivors out of 110 men there was cannibalism they made contact with inuit who are obviously surviving i'm surprised none of them like wanted to become like adopted inuit but yeah. they probably didn't want to come associated with those savages. Exactly. Or something. They're not yeah. British. Yeah. As, as they're defleshing one of their dead friends, I'm not joining those savages. <laughs> they eat whale blubber. We, sir, we are British. <laughs> we are gentlemen. Yeah, gentlemen dead weight who don't know how to survive. So it would be like taking on rather large children. You got uh, lead poisoning. You got botulism. Pippins. It's about <laughs> pretty much as bad as it gets. I put it over the edge, yeah. the pippins. But at least, at least they had a thousand books. I mean, you, True. you're there for three years. You could read a book a day. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's all you'd have time to do. <laughs> stuck on a boat in the Arctic. <sighs> all right, let's go to Australia. Oz. I'm, I'm all for that. It's warmer there, right? It sure mm -hmm. is. What could possibly go wrong in Australia? This is uh, 1860. Here's the mission briefing. The leader is Robert O'Hara Burke. A charming man with a with a complete lack of bushcraft skills and common sense. 
Who <laughs> <laughs> was actually chosen due to uh, infighting in the explorers group. Oh, he was chosen because of infighting? Yeah, there were uh, cliques and factions, uh-huh. and uh, the people who were actually, uh, you know, experienced, they, nobody could agree to send them because they didn't like them. Uh, okay. <laughs> so they chose this guy. So that, so you'd rather have an inexperienced guy that everybody likes as opposed to an experienced guy who's a bit of a dick. Exactly. Yep. I'm going to go with the dick. It's like the office <laughs> version of the uh, of an expedition. Yeah. Right? You well, don't hire the good manager. It's yeah. ironic because this guy's a huge dick. <laughs> oh. But I guess. He's one of those secret dicks. Yeah, he turns out to be a bit of a dick. But uh... So this is known as the Burke and Wills expedition. Uh, William John Wills was the surveyor, navigator, and third in command. So you're wondering why is it called Burke and Wills if it's the third in command? Right, okay. Maybe because he's the sole survivor or something? We'll get to that. <laughs> the mission, crossing Australia from Melbourne in the south to the Gulf of Carpentaria in the north, a distance of 2,000 miles. Okay. Now, this time, most of the island of Australia had not been explored by European settlers. So it's completely unknown. So this was kind of this was an exploration in and of itself. Like they were going to yeah. go mapping along the way and blah blah blah. Like yeah. this is start date August twentieth, eighteen sixty. The transport was twenty three horses, six wagons, and twenty six camels. Okay, because they know they're going to encounter some sort of desert. Although camels uh, were very new to Australia, they had only seven in the continent the year before, but they got twenty six for this expedition. Hmm. Okay, well this seems reasonable. I don't see why anything would go wrong with this. And the crew is nineteen men. Mm-hmm. They had provisions for two years. They also had a cedar-topped oak camp table, a bathtub, <laughs> rockets, flags, and a Chinese gong. What? You, you never what? know when you need a Chinese gong. Maybe scare some natives away or something? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's like everybody knows aborigines hate Chinese gongs. Presenting the explorers or, or maybe they thought they were gonna like become emperors of some like lost kingdom yeah, maybe. or something like that gone to announce my presence yeah. in your aborigines <laughs> to, to believe that i'm a god on earth or something uh the equipment altogether weighed as much as 20 tons that's t-o-n-n-e-s mm, metric tons and they had 270 liters of rum to feed the camels in the belief that it prevented scurvy what the- that rum prevented scurvy yes rum prevented scurvy in camels yes <laughs> Well, if you put the lime on it, like... Do camels get scurvy? I can't answer that question. And I don't think rum cures it. <laughs> I think there's a lot of things wrong with this belief. That was a bad call. They, they, and then, of course, later they had lime juice, which they ditched when it became apparent they had too much gear. Yeah, they got rid they of the, the actual rum, cure. What? Yes. Kept the rum. This is not a good idea. <laughs> I guess they didn't know about vitamin C yet. Yeah. Mm. You should have been there. But the, the British in the Northwest Passage 12 year, or 15 years earlier knew about scurvy and had all their scurvy cures? Maybe. Not necessarily. They may have just had lemon juice because it was delicious. The mm. ultimate cause of scurvy was not known until 1932. But they had curatives but for they, it. But they knew to treat it with fresh fruit. Yeah. So Okay. So they didn't know the cause of scurvy, but they knew the cures. That doesn't make any sense. It was a Scottish surgeon in the British Royal Navy, James Lind, who first proved it could be treated with citrus fruit in experiments he described in his 1753 book, A Treatise of the Scurvy. Okay. They should have brought that book. (laughs) Though his advice was not implemented by the Royal Navy for several decades. Oh, there you go. So late late 1700s, I guess. Uh, So some of the pitfalls were, rather than taking cattle to be slaughtered during the trip, they decided to experiment with dried meat. The extra weight required three extra wagons. Yeah, they could have just made the food carry itself. Yeah, I was yeah. about to say, so then, yeah, you didn't have, like, mobile food. 
Instead, you're going to go with, oh, we're going to dry our own meat and carry it. Uh, one wagon broke down before it had even left Royal Park, and by midnight of the first day, the expedition had only reached Essendon on the edge of Melbourne. <laughs> they hadn't even gotten out of town? Yeah. <laughs> At Essendon, two more wagons broke down. <laughs> Of the six wagons. So they're now down to half their wagons. Shoddy work. Oh, they probably this repaired why, them. They probably this, repaired them and kept going, This is going, why but still. Australians don't have a car company that's worldwide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, so these wagons were going down, like, roads. Yeah. And just breaking down. Yeah. Yes. And they yeah. wanted to do a full-on expedition. We shouldn't have packed so much dried meat. Better ditch the lime juice. Uh, after four weeks, they dumped guns and supplies to lighten the load. Uh, they were averaging two miles an hour. Why didn't they just eat more? <laughs> Good idea, right? I mean, then they would have been even slower because they're logy. <laughs> it would have been more naps, but they might have gotten up to like three and a half miles an hour. Yeah, maybe. Like half of them could nap while the other ones are fixing their broken <laughs> wagons. Jeez. They reached Menindee on twelfth of October, having taken two months to travel four hundred and seventy miles. The regular mail coach did the journey in little more than a week. So wait, so the mail coach took a week, and they took how long? Two months. <laughs> <laughs> they should have sent the mailman yeah, to do the exploring. Exactly. <laughs> the funny part is, is that this is a route that a mail coach took on a regular basis. Yeah, like that's the really passed. entertaining part. They should yeah. have just put fucking postage on the meat, <laughs> yeah, mailed it to this other <laughs> and place, mailed it to the other place, and then picked it <laughs> and up and met it there. We'll yeah. see you yeah. there. <laughs> Two of the expedition's five officers had resigned, including the second in command and a surgeon. That would be me. I would be, I'd be like, I'd be washing my, I'd, I'd do that Jerry Seinfeld. Ah, okay, I'm out. Like that. Yeah, yeah. You know that? So the second in command was the smartest of the bunch, obviously. Yeah. 13 members of the expedition had been fired and eight new men had been hired. So fire 13 and hire eight to replace them. You know, seven less people you get to feed. So they arrived at Cooper Creek. This was the frontier. This is the edge of the frontier. Mm -hmm. This is new territory now. So they've already burned two year, two months out of their two year journey. Three months. All right. Okay. Uh, and they formed a depot. A plague of rats forced the men to move their depot but there's some more, <laughs> further downstream. That's, that's more food right there. <laughs> mm, rats. Some men remained at the depot to expedite travel for Burke, Wills, and two other men. So they're splitting the party now, which, as we know, in D&D &D and Call of Cthulhu, you should never do. Never, never. Yeah. 9th of February, 1861, they found they could not reach the ocean three miles away because of the mangrove swamps in their way. So they basically, they basically made it to where they were going. If you count not actually getting there as getting there. Right. Three miles away. Three more miles. It's a stone's throw. I can... Yeah, we totally made it to within three miles. But isn't that, isn't that even worse? Out of 2,000, that's pretty good. That's almost worse. Like, if they'd given up at, like, Cooper's Creek, they, you know, uh, they'd thrown in the towel and they were, like, still 1,500 miles away. You're kind of like, oh, well, you know, it didn't work, blah, blah, blah. But you get to within three miles and don't do it. Yeah. It's kind of even yeah. worse. Like, you're almost like... A bumbling idiot. It's like almost 99.9% .9 of the way, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a depressing arrival because at that point they'd gone through two-thirds of the food. So now they're at the halfway mark, but far more than halfway on the dried meat. Somebody wasn't doing the math the whole way. <laughs> yeah, like, you shouldn't reach halfway and then go, okay, well, how much food do we got left? We got a third of our food left. What? They obviously took my advice about eating more to lighten the load. Well, they just left a bunch of guys behind. Right. That's right. And, and presumably the bathtub. Yeah. They're down seven guys, and they ate one and a half times as much food as they should. Yeah. I guess that must have been the second-in-command's job. Keeping track. Yeah. <laughs> I'm leaving. <laughs> All right. So now comes the return trip. This is where things really go south. Literally. Wah, wah. <laughs> 
Now, on their way north, the weather had been hot and dry, but on the way back, the wet season broke, and the tropical monsoons began. They did eat the camels. There you go. There's your walking food. Yeah. Nice. Uh, they also ate some flowering plants, and one of the dudes, Charles Gray, caught an 11-pound black-headed python, which they ate. Oh, mm-hmm. that's industrious. Both Burke and Gray immediately came down with dysentery. <laughs> and Gray died weeks later. Oh. oh. But not before he was accused of malingering, so the poor guy is quietly dying, and yes. his companions are convinced he's just faking. This is where Burke <laughs> is showing his asshole colors that we were talking about. Right, his dickishness. Yeah. Despite the fact that he also got sick. If I'm remembering it right, but I think Gray got beaten up pretty badly for faking his illness like two or three days before he finally expired. Yes, of it. yeah, that's true. They beat him. Yeah, Burke, for malingering. Burke beat him up, and uh, he had a he couldn't walk after uh, shortly thereafter. Yeah. So of the three men left on the uh, the split party, mm-hmm. they returned to the depot at Cooper Creek, which was had been abandoned by the rest of the group. Oh, okay. Abandoned that very morning. Nice. Oh. They missed them by nine hours. Oh, why did the other group leave? Well, they were supposed to, they were told to wait a certain amount of time. They were told to wait three months. They actually waited four and almost a half before yeah. finally saying they're not coming back. We're out of here. The, they left supplies buried under a, a tree. Well, they only have three guys left. I mean, how yeah. hard could it be to catch up to the rest of the caravan? Even really hard. They were dying of dysentery. They yeah. were wow. so sick they could barely crawl. Dysentery. Ill health. They're uh, faking it, malingerers. <laughs> they, should, they should punch themselves. <laughs> should have. I'm totally faking it. <laughs> they decided to attempt to reach the furthest outpost of pastoral settlement in South Australia, a cattle station near Mount Hopeless, appropriately named. Oh, wow. This is this story's version of the terror in the yeah. Erebus. <laughs> You're all getting hints that you should not be doing this. This would mean traveling southwest through the desert for 150 miles. They wrote a letter explaining their intentions and reburied it in the cache under the marked tree in case a rescue party visited the area. After leaving the depot, they rarely traveled more than five miles a day. The last pack animals died. The men were unable to carry enough water to cross the desert to Mount Hopeless. Huh. So they basically turned around. Now, some aborigines, oh. helpful aborigines. They came up and didgeridooed them back to health? <laughs> yeah, they used their mystic powers uh, and also gave them fish, which helped a lot. Uh-huh. Some nardu, which is a damper made from ground sporocarps. I don't the know mar- what any of that means. <laughs> I think it's a seed pod of some kind. Uh, also known as marsalea. Aquatic fern. It's an aquatic fern. And if it's not prepared correctly, it can lead to a vitamin B deficiency. That's right. And it was not prepared correctly. So uh, not, not so helpful aborigines. Well, the, no, the aborigines had gave them these nardu cakes, which were prepared properly. And uh-huh. then the Burke said, oh, we can do that ourselves. Again, dickishness yeah. bubbling to the surface. If these savages can do it, yeah. we can do it. So the savages are helping them out for a while. Uh-huh. And then uh, Wills was away from camp one day, and Burke decided to shoot uh, his pistol at one of the aborigines, so they didn't come back. Stop helping us. <laughs> Stop it. Eventually, the three men began to follow the river to find the Aborigine campsite. So this guy was like the Australian version of Yosemite Sam. <laughs> Pretty much. Varmint! <laughs> so Wills was two weeks to continue and asked to be left with some supplies. Shortly thereafter, Burke died, leaving the remaining man, John King, to turn back, where he found that Wills had also died, where they left him. Mm-hmm. 
So in June 1861, King found a mob of Aborigines willing to give him food and shelter, where he was found by a relief expedition in pitiful condition. King survived the two-month trip back to Melbourne and died 11 years later at age 33. When you said recovered. they found him in pitiful condition, I thought that might be the name of the town, considering, <laughs> considering all the other names we've heard of places. Welcome to pitiful condition. You're doomed! <laughs> It all could have been averted, too. This is one of the, uh, again, another terrible tragedy of miscommunication, like something out of a Scooby-Doo episode. But <laughs> after they came back to the depot and dug up the supplies and figured there was no hope and left again, uh, the depot party actually returned uh, not very much longer. Um, but since they had left no sign themselves, since Burke and Wills had not said, we were here and we yeah. got the supplies, the depot party just didn't know they had been and gone and left again. So... They missed rescue by hours twice. So they got within three miles out of a 2,000-mile journey, and then yep. they missed the the people who had all their stuff by nine hours. Yeah. And then they returned, and they just missed them. Wow. This reminds me of that old saying, close is Don't only... Don't shoot at the Aborigines. <laughs> <laughs> or close is only good in horseshoes and hand grenades. Uh, Obviously not, not expeditions. So how do you guys rate this on the doomometer? Certainly not as bad as the Franklin expedition. I mean, one one of the men survived, and the depot party were never even in danger. And they reached like 99% of their goal. Yeah, Yeah, as opposed to getting stuck in the ice. (laughs) Yeah, getting stuck in the ice like five feet in. I'm going to go, this is like six on the doomometer. I'll I'll give it a seven. Yeah, I'm going to say seven as well. I think seven and a half. I, I think what lowers the score for me is that, like, much of it was due to his dickishness. Absolutely. Like, his, his, it was due to his own mismanagement that this all kind of came to pass. Yeah, you meet up with the Aborigines who are willing to help you, mm-hmm. and then you decide to set off somewhere else. Like, surely they must know where the nearest town is or or something like that. Food. And yeah. how to get the food. And you could just be like, hey, can you help us out here and lead us to a place where we won't die? And they would be like, sure. And they give you a food that you can survive on and you go, oh, that's fine, but we're not going to eat their food. We're going to make it ourselves. Well, and then we improperly make it. Yeah, they really didn't like the Nerdu. And I've got a, I've got a quotation where they talk about, uh, they say, um, the stools it causes are enormous and seem, greatly, <laughs> and seem greatly to exceed the quantity of food consumed and is very slightly altered in appearance from what it was when eaten. <laughs> so you're basically pooping out Nardu cakes bigger than you ate them. <laughs> yeah. All right, should we move to 1871 and the Polaris expedition to the North Pole? All right. Mission briefing. Leader, Charles Franson Hall, a newspaper owner and blacksmith. Oh, that, that, that seems like a perfect candidate for an Arctic expedition. He had actually been on two previous uh, Arctic expeditions, including helping to search for John Franklin's missing 1845 expedition. Oh, so inspired yeah. then yes. by the failings of others. <laughs> the mission was to the North Pole. The start date departed from New York City in June 1871. The transport was a 387-ton screw-propelled steamer, the Polaris. Okay. The crew was 25 officers, crew, and scientific staff. Hall brought an Inuit interpreter and hunter, Iberbing, his wife, Tukulito. They actually embraced the whole, like, native experience for well, this one. Well, some of them did. Okay. And their child, the, the 
Inuit's wife and child. A Greenlandic Aboriginal Hans Hendrik, his wife Murcutt, and their three children also joined. And here's the pitfalls. Promising. Sounds like there's a promising start. Well, though Hall had abundant Arctic experience, he had no sailing experience. And so the title of captain given to him by Ulysses S. Grant was honorary. But he did hire an actual captain, didn't he? Yeah. Sidney O. Buddington was the sailing master, and George Tyson was the navigator. See, Buddington sounds like a guy you can get along with. Buddington? Hey, yeah. bud. <laughs> yeah. Stop calling me bud. <laughs> I'm Sidney O. Buddington. Uh, so, in effect, Polaris had three captains, a fact which would weigh heavily on the fate. Oh, this is a too many cooks spoiling, yes. the, spoiling the broth. Oh. By the time the ship reached St. John's, there was dissension among the officers and scientific staff. Uh, the dissension spread to the crew, which was divided along nationalistic lines, half of the crew being German and the other half being American. And so they were at odds with one another? Yeah. Okay. Uh, somebody shoo- threw the ship's boilers overboard. What? Oh, dear. That uh, seems a little uh, petty, doesn't it? And that seems doomish. Like, yeah, that yeah. seems like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We don't need this rudder. Yeah, cutting the nose off despite the face. You kind of need those, don't you? It powers the ship. Yeah, the screw propeller requires... Yeah. I don't pretend to understand how well, that was 1870s quite... boats work. <laughs> that was quite the argument. Sounds like the guy was like, well, we're not, if I do this, we're just going to give up. Yeah, we're going to turn back. Uh, uh, I'll right, do this, okay. we'll turn back. And then they went, no, we're not. You're not the boss <laughs> yes, of us. Screw you. So three months in, Polaris had reached their furthest north point, and the three leading officers could not agree on whether or not to proceed. Hall and Tyson wanted to press north uh, to cut down the distance they would have to travel by dog sled. Okay. And Buddington did not want to further risk the ship. In the end, they sailed into Thank God Harbor... See, that sounds like a good one. Unless, unless it's no, unless it's like this. Oh, thank God! I'm in a harbor. I think it is. Yeah, they Uh, all have such terrible names. And they settled in for the winter on the shore of northern Greenland. So there's a shore. Yeah, I don't ever want to settle in for winter in in that place. (laughs) If it has green in the title, (laughs) this must be the greenest greenish land in all of the Arctic. (laughs) It's a, it's funny because obviously Greenland is an ironic name for mm. the country, mm-hmm. for the territory. Uh, within a few weeks, Hall was making preparations for the sledging trip with the aim of beating the previous North record set by Britain's Sir William Perry. Mm-hmm. Before he left on the overland trip, Hall gave Buddington a detailed list of instructions regarding how to manage the ship in his absence. This likely did not sit well with a sailing master with over 20 years of experience. Mm-hmm. There is some evidence that Buddington may have been an alcoholic. On at least three occasions, he raided the ship's stores, including the alcohol kept by the scientists for preserving specimens. <laughs> Maybe he just had frostbite. The funny part would be is if he drank the alcohol that actually had, still had specimens in <laughs> them, right. right? It's like, this specimen doesn't need all this booze. I'll just like take a little off the top, pour some water in there. It'll be fine. <laughs> a little narwhal, narwhal tusk <laughs> yeah. in, my, in my rum. Mmm, tastes better. Upon their return two weeks later, Hall suddenly fell ill after drinking a cup of coffee. His symptoms started with an upset stomach, then progressed to vomiting and delirium the following day. Hall accused several of the ship's company, including Bessels, of having poisoned him. That's the doctor. Uh-huh. By, and by poisoning it, he means take out the alcohol that he put in it. Maybe. <laughs> There's coffee in this coffee. Blah! <laughs> he refused medical treatment from Bessels and drank only liquids delivered directly by Tukulito. All right. Our, our Inuit friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seemed to improve for a few days, uh, but by November 4th, Dr. Bessels resumed treatment, and shortly after Hall's condition began to deteriorate, he suffered vomiting, delirium, and collapsed. 
Bessels, the doctor, diagnosed stroke, and Hall finally died on November 8th. Later, much later, tests on tissue samples showed that Hall had received large doses of arsenic in the last two weeks of his life. So he had been poisoned. Yes. He was right. Yes. So command of the expedition turned over to Buddington, often seen drunk. <laughs> but he was far from the only one to pill for the alcohol stores. According to testimony at the later inquiry, Tyson was also seen drunk, and Chief Engineer Schumann had gone so far as to make a duplicate of Budge- Buddington's key so he could also help himself. Out of what? Well, he was an engineer. <laughs> he may have hidden away a key copying device <laughs> so the two in his com- socks. The two commanding officers and the chief engineer were all tippling on a regular basis. <laughs> yes. So an expedition to try for the pole was dispatched June 1872 via whaleboat, uh, but this was crushed by the ice within a few miles of the Polaris. The men hiked back to the ship, and another try was made with two more whaleboats. In the meantime, the Polaris had found open water and was searching for a route south. Buddington, not eager to spend another winter on the ice, I can relate to that, <laughs> sent a man north with orders for the whaleboats to return to the Polaris. The men were forced to abandon both craft and walk 20 miles back to Polaris. So now three of the ship's lifeboats were lost, and a fourth would be crushed by the ice in July after being carelessly left out overnight. Wow. So the, uh, the expedition had failed its main objective to reach the North Pole. It is certainly starting to get into the realm of they're going to get what they deserve. I mean, they threw their boilers over. They, yep. le- they left one of the lifeboats out overnight, so it got crushed. They abandoned three others. They're all having a drunken party. They poisoned their, their, the leader of the expedition yep. to death. So southbound, the Polaris ran aground on a shallow iceberg and could not be freed. Water was coming in and the pumps could not keep up, and cargo was thrown onto the ice to buoy the ship. Okay. Okay. A number of the crew were out on the surrounding ice during the night when a breakup of the pack occurred, the ice pack. Mm-hmm. When morning came, the group, including all of Inuit, found themselves stranded on an ice floe with 1,900 pounds of food, two whaleboats, and two kayaks. Assuming incorrectly that they would soon be within rowing distance of the ship, the seamen soon broke up one of the whaleboats for firewood, oh, <laughs> boy. making a safe escape to land unlikely. Oh, man. One night in November, the men went on an eating binge, consuming a large <laughs> quantity of the food stores. <laughs> the group drifted on the ice floe for the next six months, over 1,800 miles. <laughs> Before being rescued off the coast of Newfoundland by uh, the sealer Tigris. These guys sound like they're the ones who got off lucky. All probably would have perished had not the group included the skilled Inuit hunters who uh, killed seal. I'm surprised the Inuit just didn't get in their kayaks and go, screw you guys. <laughs> yeah. You're idiots. Especially, I am out of here. Especially knowing how much note they would have gotten in the uh, in the official reports yeah. about how they actually <laughs> saved the expedition. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, the Polaris, having lost much of their bedding, clothing, and food when it was haphazardly jettisoned from the ship, uh, the, re- <laughs> the remaining 14 men built a hut from lumber salvaged from the ship, and on October 24th extinguished the ship's boilers to conserve coal. The bilge pump stopped. The ship heeled over on her side, half out of the water. Fortunately, the Ita Inuit helped the men survive the winter. I guess this is a nearby Inuit uh-huh. group. Uh, after wintering ashore, the crew built two boats from savage wood salvaged wood from the ship and were rescued in July by a Scottish whaler. I can't think of anybody who didn't deserve this. Pretty much all of them should have died, except for the Inuit who were along for the ride. Like, if the entire crew had perished, except for the Inuit, it kind of would have been like they got what they deserved. The fact that anybody survived is going to drop this way down on my dumometer. 
Oh, okay. Probably about a four. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking a three and a half max. Oh, what? oh, way more than that. I mean, on an ice floe for six months, starving and ruining your stupid decisions, and you're freezing. I'm gonna say seven. Ooh, no okay. way. How you don't? That's pretty doomy. How yeah, many but were... they didn't die? They survived. They were rescued. I just can't highly rate it on the doomy scale because they deserved it. I'm gonna, mm. I'm gonna give it a four. I'll so give it a four. They, they didn't make. They didn't get to the pool. Hence the doomed expedition. So here's one of my favorites. Okay. 1897, S.A. Andre's Arctic Balloon Expedition. Okay. <laughs> All right. Here's the mission briefing. 
The leader, Salomon August André, engineer, physicist, aeronaut, and polar explorer. Oh, I like the term aeronaut. Yeah. Mission mm-hmm. from Sweden over the North Pole to Russia or Canada. Non-specific destination. That's yep. always a good start. A start date, 1897. The transport, a hydrogen balloon with a self-invented steering system. All right. Okay. Uh-huh. Could be good, could be bad. Uh, let me guess. He leaned his butt over the edge and farted. <laughs> that was how he was going to steer this thing. Dude, totally. Don't worry about it. I got the steering covered. Listen, beware the power of sneaky butt. If we really want to, like, you know, turbocharge this, we'll light them. Yeah, and the the, uh, provisions were all beans. (laughs) The crew, photographer Nils Strindberg and engineer Knut Frankel. Notable provisions? Mm -hmm. Pigeons. Several heavy crates of of beer, port, and champagne. Uh, Every good expedition needs some champagne. You got to celebrate once you get there. That's true. But crates? Several crates? It's a big celebration. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be welcomed by throngs of thousands in northern Russia and or Canada. Every day surviving is a celebration. Uh, they cracked on one this every one, day. In fact. Yeah. They sh- well, they should have. They probably would have <laughs> used up their stores. <laughs> so Andre had invented a steering system made of drag ropes where the ropes would hang off the balloon and could, in theory, help it counteract the need for any lighter than aircraft to go the same speed as the wind pushing it. Okay. The friction of the ropes were supposed to slow the balloon to allow small sails to be used to turn it. Okay. The name of the polar balloon was Ornin, which means eagle, was delivered from its manufacturer in Paris without being tested. When measurements showed it to be leaking more than expected, Andre refused to acknowledge the alarming implications of this. Uh, And it was a hydrogen balloon, right? Yeah. That slightly flammable, Hindenburg-esque material. And the basket was loaded to the brim with scientific equipment. Moving out low over the water, it was pulled so far down by friction from the several hundred meter long drag ropes that it dipped the basket into the water. (laughs) The friction also twisted the ropes around, detaching them from their screw holds. (laughs) Most of them unscrewed at once, and over 1,000 pounds of rope were lost. (laughs) Well, that would have let it go up then. Yeah, they would have gotten the bottom of the basket out of the water. (laughs) Yeah. While the three explorers could simultaneously be seen to dump another 500 pounds of sand overboard to get the basket clear of the water. So 1,600 pounds of essential weight was completely lost in the first few minutes. (laughs) (laughs) But they kept going. Oh, they kept going. (laughs) I'd be saying, let's start over. Yeah, let's do over. Do over, mulligan. (laughs) Somebody (laughs) forgot to carry the six in this math. So before it was even clear of the launch, the supposedly steerable craft had become an ordinary hydrogen balloon with a few ropes hanging from it at the mercy of the wind. With no ability to aim at any particular goal (laughs) and too light ballast, Uh, it rose 2,300 feet, an unimagined height, (laughs) where the lower air pressure made the hydrogen escape all the faster. (laughs) Now, the plan to communicate with the outside world was through the pigeons and some buoys. How do pigeons handle 2,300 feet of altitude? (laughs) Fly! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, Andre le- released at least four pigeons, but only one was ever retrieved by a Norwegian steamer where the pigeon had alighted and been promptly shot. <laughs> it's a pigeon. Get it. <laughs> uh, they're so rare in the Arctic. It's the rare Arctic pigeon. We need it. Uh, the boys would have messages inside them, be dropped into the water, and the current take them to civilization. Only two of them were ever found. I don't know how many there were. Hopefully. Probably more than two. Andre's flight lasted 10 hours and 29 minutes. Didn't even make lunchtime. And was followed by another 41 hours of bumpy ride with frequent ground contact before the inevitable final crash. 
<laughs> well, at least the one good thing is they can only have gotten so far in 10 hours, yeah. right? Doesn't sound dangerous, does it? <laughs> so, so they traveled for two days and three hours altogether. There were no injuries and all the equipment was undamaged. Oh, okay. Well, I guess, you know, when you're kind of just like sort of fluffed to the ground, it sort of, yeah. it's a softer landing. In theory. Andre had spent no time considering the indigenous people's methods for surviving in such terrible terrain. The sled of his own design was completely worthless. <laughs> they had not made any provisions for the possibility of crash landing, because that's just pessimism. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes one of those self-fulfilling things. If you yes, think sir. you're going to crash, you will crash, right? <laughs> Uh, so the food was designed to be prepared and eaten in the balloon. Uh, the warm clothes that they packed were just some wool coats and some oil skins. The three struggled across the Arctic desert for months in their overheavy, badly designed sleds, uh, across ice shelves, crevasses, and drifting flows. On September 12th, they resigned to camp on a floe and let the ice take them where it would. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely throwing your hands in the air. That's giving up. Yep. Like, let's do, let the flow do the, do the work. Yeah. <laughs> They drifted south to Kivitoya Island and died soon thereafter. Yeah. Their story and their bodies were finally recovered 33 years later in 1930 by Norwegian expedition studying glaciers. Somewhere on the map, you have to put a little note, here be idiots. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but that's how, like, coves get named, right? You know, the cove where they end up flowing into right. and, uh, you know, end up dying. It could have been uh, Balloon Idiot Cove. Balloon Idiot Cove. <laughs> Overconfident so. jackass aisle. <laughs> The, the amazing part is that in two days of ballooning, they couldn't walk it back in more than like two or three months. Well, I get, they were over the ocean. Swim for it. <laughs> I, in, in I like your style. Ocean. <laughs> I think they were out on the ice pack and it was drifting the wrong direction too, so they couldn't make progress no matter how much they were walking. Dumometer? I'm going to give this one a higher score just because it's an awesome story. <laughs> So it's I'm, not the popularityometer. Yeah, I'm gonna go. With, I'm gonna go with a five out of ten because they all died. Oh, they all died. Yeah, it was only three guys. Didn't more guys die in the Australian one? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the death uh, count was much lower in this one because there was only three. Like yeah, it just but also they all seems, died. 100 death rate. Yeah, <laughs> it just also seems to be again that they totally deserved it. Like uh, we're not going to pay attention what the indigenous population know and. This is a steering we don't need to mechanism test this. of my own. Invention. We're not going to test the balloon. And you dip in the water at the start. I ah, just throw shit overboard. We lost all our ropes. Keep going. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Like, <laughs> like, why didn't they just like, go, okay, let's turn around. Let's, like, they should have. The yeah, fact that they, After the first 10 minutes. They ignored the do-over moment. I guess a four. I don't know. It's, right. it's hard. This is our arbitrary number. I'm yeah. going to give it an eight. Really? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you're just intrigued by the story. It like, was a total just, failure. It was 100% yeah. failure. It's yeah. just the death toll wasn't as high because they started out with less people. That's right. I think it's, I would give it a seven or an eight as well. I mean, even if they're idiots and they deserved it, they really did, you know, starve to death on the ice. Yeah. That's, that's doomy. You guys would convince me. I'm jacking mine up to six. Ooh. Right. I, I'll agree. Yeah. Sure. Peer pressure. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, it's, a, it doesn't mean anything anyway. <laughs> This is our arbitrary doomy scale. It's the yes, official caustic soda doomometer. That's right. Oh, okay. it, it does mean something. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I am reading a six on this. <laughs> if, if only they had that before they went. Yeah, the doomometer. they could have doometered yeah. their balloon. Just scan the balloon. No, no, no. This is like a six, guys. We are not getting in this. Yeah, this is all wrong. The ropes fall off and it starts jumping up like a Geiger counter. <laughs> Anything over a two and a half, and it's time to abandon ship. Yeah, yeah. If I'm getting a reading at all, <laughs> I 
I'm staying home in my comfy, comfy chair. All right, let's move 13 years later, the 1910 Scott Terranova expedition to the South Pole. Mission briefing. The leader was Captain Robert Falcon Scott. Mm-hmm. The mission, to reach the South Pole and to secure for the British Empire the honor of this achievement. Where did all the great middle names like Falcon go, huh? They became bad guys in Die Hard movies. <laughs> like, and Jay's and, Bond movies. Uh, the start date, summer 1910. The transport was, of course, the Terra Nova. And for overland journeys, they had 34 dogs, three motor sledges, and 19 Siberian ponies. Oh, wow. But they weren't good ponies. They were not good ponies. They were purchased by someone with no equine knowledge. So they sent out the guy who had no idea what a good pony would look like yeah. to get the ponies. To be like me. Yeah. Hey, Joe, go buy some ponies. Uh, <laughs> For our Arctic expedition. Oh. oh. Okay. So, like, I need... Come on, let's go. I need, chop, chop. I need, I need Arctic ponies? Let's What's, go. Okay. Why are you still here? All right, I'll be right back. <laughs> hey, I got some ponies. These suck. <laughs> well, I... Uh, they said they would be No good. time. Okay, let's go. <laughs> Uh, the crew was 65 men out of 8,000 applicants. Wow. There were a lot of applicants. That's true. There's a lot of Ed Hardy heads. Like, <laughs> Dude, or, totally going to the South Pole, man. Woo! Or maybe this was the uh, like 19th century version of like death by cop, death by expedition. <laughs> yeah. 9,000 like, suicidal guys. I'm depressed. I want to go to the Arctic and just lay down and go to sleep and never wake up. Uh. If we make it, I'll totally get laid. And if we don't, I'll die. So who cares? I want to go somewhere where somebody will eat me. (laughs) (laughs) So here are some of the pitfalls. Now, the dogs were from Siberia, and nobody bothered to learn stop or go in Siberian. (laughs) 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 Teach a dog. The dogs are teachable. Didn't you buy them from somebody who knew? And he would be like, oh, by the way, like, a, okay, yeah. mister, I have some dogs for you. Here they are, right? My dogs. You want Siberian to buy? Siberian slash. Husky. Excellent for South Pole. You want to uh, buy? I want one of those. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we good. Need blood. You give me money. So let me tell you about how to no. command them. Uh, no, but it's uh, really, it's stop and funny go. Funny accent. <laughs> okay, you take You can't it. speak English. All right. <laughs> give me the dogs. Let's go. The ponies were from the Northern Hemisphere and were shedding their winter coats. <sighs> <laughs> so there. So I accidentally bought Arctic ponies instead, of, an, Antarctic instead of Antarctic ponies. ponies yes, yeah, that's correct. I thought the Antarctic ones were like really small and insect-like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the good thing about the Antarctic ponies, they mm. can carry four times their body weight. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's ten. During the first days of December, the ship was struck by a heavy storm, losing two ponies, a dog, and ten tons of coal and sixty-five gallons of petrol. Uh, at one point, the sh- with the ship taking water and the pumps having failed, the crew had to bail her out with buckets. Old, old school. Wow. I, you better have some good gloves on. That yeah. is Bailing out exactly. Antarctic water yeah. with a bucket. That Oof. is going to suck. I feel there was no Gore-Tex. On. Not even no Gore-Tex, but no brains. They really turned up their nose at any sort of, you know, Inuit technology, you know, from inferior people. So yeah. I think they oh, just had, like, wool and other things that freeze solid. More yeah. of this turning their nose up at the local savages. Again, the I British snobbery. Yeah. Let's yeah. not pay attention to people who've lived here for hundreds of, or maybe even thousands that's of years. Could they yeah. possibly know, the heathens. <laughs> January 1911, one sledge was lost during unloading onto an island. In an overland depot-making journey, six of the eight ponies died and were eaten. Well, at least they ate them. Yeah. Uh, the Terra Nova deposited the men at Evans Cove for some geology, but the ship couldn't come back to collect them due to ice. Evan's Cove doesn't sound dangerous. Lulled <laughs> sure. them into a sense of complacency. Unless, of course, Evan is a total jerk. 
Uh, so the men spent the winter months of 1912 in a snowdrift <laughs> on Inexpressible Island. Uh. <laughs> There we go. There. I knew it was in there somewhere. <laughs> well, a snowdrift at least is somewhat igloo-like. Yeah, right? it's basically a snow cave. Yeah. Uh, here they suffered frostbite, hunger, and dysentery, and the discomfort of a blubber stove in confined quarters. We can imagine yeah. what that would smell like. I'm sure a blubber stove is Probably not... Might, might smell good. Might smell like bacon. I mean, it's fat, right? So <laughs> cooking, think of the times when you've walked into a kitchen and something fatty's been cooking. It probably smelled pretty good. The worst thing is that you're probably hungry all the time. <laughs> oh, man, I totally want to eat some of that blubber. Shut so, up. we got to stay warm. Somebody wakes up, and the other guy's, like, licking the blubber candle, right? And you're like, hey, dude, we got to burn that. Oh. Okay, so then there was a South Polar Journey. This was the South Polar Journey. Mm-hmm. Sixteen men would set out using motor sledges, ponies, and dogs. Uh, both motor sledges failed after a little more than 50 miles travel, a blizzard struck, forcing the men to camp for a week and to break into rations intended for later. Mm-hmm. The remaining ponies, in an advanced state of exhaustion, were shot. So five men, Scott, Wilson, Oates, Bowers, and Evans. Evans? That, that was his cove. Yeah, I, I guess. guess so. Would go forward in the last leg of the journey. Okay, five men. Cinco. But they'd only planned the trip for four. They added the fifth at the last minute, so they didn't have the rations correct. I mean, they were all underfed anyways, right. but... They made it even worse. But why would they do that then? Well, Scott was kind of a boob at the end. (laughs) You know, the ponies also sank them. They were supposed to set food depots on the way to the pole. But because of the ponies, they couldn't make it. They were too weak and they couldn't travel far enough. So they weren't able to store enough food along the way either. So he's basically the extra guy is like taking place of the ponies. (laughs) He's like probably not carrying as much. Maybe his name was Pony Boy. Maybe that's where they got it for the outsiders. Come on, Pony Boy. (laughs) Let's go. You signed up. We chose you out of 8,000. Hey, didn't we eat those ponies? <laughs> Stop calling me Pony Boy. Guys. They're like looking at him and licking their lips. Oh, he's next. He lo- he, yeah, he looks like a giant hot dog. He, no, them. he wakes up in the morning. Somebody's rubbing him with a blubber stove. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so they reached the pole. Oh, wow. Yep. Okay. Well, that's prom- That's a good thing. That's the good news. This so far, <laughs> is this the only story we've heard so far that actually accomplished their goal? Well, here's the thing. Okay. They wanted to be the first ones there. Uh-huh. But uh, Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen had arrived one month prior. Oh, burn. But the silver lining is he left a tent, supplies, and a letter to King Hakon of Norway, which he politely asked Scott to deliver. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So they knew Scott was on his way. Like, oh, this yeah. is a total, like, in-your-face moment. Bam! <laughs> You've been bitch-slapped by me. <laughs> hey, you mind taking this back to my king for me? <laughs> I beat you here. Na- no, or, like, na-na-na-na-na-na. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> the letter read, na-na-na-na-na. <laughs> that's, that's what I actually said in that. It's the only satisfying part of the story, you know, this triumph of intelligence where Amundsen came, used Inuit skins instead of wool. He had dogs instead of stupid ponies and tractors that froze up yeah and he succeeded without starving anybody yeah that was the not doomed expedition oh yeah that's, that's right. right dude who wants yeah. to talk about that we'll let horse track hooligans talk about that one on their successful expeditions episode part of scott's expedition was science the scientific in nature so they had been doing a bunch of science during this whole thing so they weren't it wasn't really they didn't really realize it was a, a race so much uh, to the pole amundsen obviously did yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is a tortoise in a hair moment right here is what this is Except the hair one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know if you were familiar with that story. 
On the journey back, 30 pounds of rock samples were added to the sledges despite high levels of frostbite to some of the men. The first man to die was Evans. There you go. The four survivors suffered from some of the most extreme weather conditions ever recorded in the region. (laughs) Oh, nice. So they get hit by, like, the storm of the century at the same time. exactly. Perfect. Daily marches were now down to less than five miles. And the party was desperately short of food and fuel. Well, at least that was better than that Australian expedition. They were only doing like two miles. That's true. Uh, A month after Evans died, Oates, while apparently lucid, stepped outside the tent saying, by Scott's account, I'm just going outside and I may be some time. Yeah, very famous line. (laughs) This was the guy who had argued to take a gun at the onset of the expedition. Uh, maybe to shoot himself. Yeah, maybe, probably. <laughs> I know what it's going to. I know how this is going to come down. <laughs> I wish I had a bullet. This is going back to my. I'm, I called it on the whole like manic depressive front uh, on the ex- explorers. Yeah. Uh, this sacrifice was not enough to save the others. Scott Wilson and Bauer struggled on to a point eleven miles south of a depot, but were halted by a fierce blizzard. Oh, they're 11 miles, 5 miles a day. They're literally like two days yeah, away like two from days away the if depot. They, if they had kept up. Here's the thing, though. They would have made it days previously if they had actually put their farthest ahead depot at the place where they had initially planned. Yeah. But because they had stupid ponies and they underfed their dogs and everyone was too weak, they had to put the depot farther north. So that's why they died. Doomed! <laughs> yeah. Doe. So the supplies ran out, and Scott's last diary entry... 29th of March, 1912, the presumed date of their deaths, ends with these words. Every day we have been ready to start for the depot, 11 miles away. But outside the door of the tent, it remains a scene of whirling drift. I do not think we can hope for any better things now. We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker, of course, and the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. Well. And their remains were found some eight months later. All right, Doomometer score, I'm giving this like a nine and a half. They totally got screwed on, like, mission accomplished. Yeah. And everybody died. Yeah. And it was, like, gross mismanagement. And their, you know, their dogs didn't understand English, and their ponies were shedding their fur, and uh, they even left some guys in a snowdrift for winter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm giving like a nine and a half. It's a, it's Ooh. a, yeah. But they did a bunch of science. Yeah, but they didn't get to reap the benefits of it. All no, they, they didn't, but we do. <laughs> all they did is they, they sledged some rocks, like, you know, a couple of miles closer to civilization. Yeah, a yeah. lot of their science got sniffed at, and they brought back, like, emperor penguin eggs that the Royal Geographic Society almost couldn't be bothered to accept from yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Not every one of the 65 men died. Okay, who survived? Uh, most of them. Oh, right, because they only sent five men on. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm gonna... still going to give it, like, a nine and a half, because that wow. was sheer awesomeness. About a six, I guess, the same as the the balloon one. Yeah, I'm going yeah. six. Yeah. No, no, I like the fact that Amundsen left them an in-your-face letter. <laughs> that was the like, icing on the doom cake. Yeah, that, that's the uh, that's the the ball punch in the uh, <laughs> in the doom sandwich. This is this one's bad. I I think this is a nine and a half or a ten on Ooh. the doom scale. Not only for the all the things we've discussed, but you know there was one member who had such tooth damage from scurvy that he's well chattering his teeth in the cold, splintered all of his teeth, and they all fell out of his head. And- oh, oh. That is awesome. And yeah. they had one of their guys wander off into a blizzard and commit suicide. <laughs> yeah, and this is That guy had like terrible. wanted to bring a gun along so he could presumably shoot himself if the time right. came to but- it. Like, I mean, this has got it all. I love that quote, though. Yeah. Every time I go to get groceries in the corner store, I'm going to tell <laughs> Deanna that before I leave. I'm just stepping out. And maybe sometime. <laughs> <laughs> 
Stay tuned next week for part two of Doomed Expeditions on Caustic Soda.